0: Hello, and thanks for joining us for the Education Doctor Radio Show. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Ellis. The Education Doctor Radio Show is your family source for educational excellence. Our program is brought to you by Compass Education Strategies. We're on the principal consultant, and our mantra is access, thrive, graduate. You can learn more about our firm at compasseducationstrategies.com. Thanks to everyone who is listening to our show today. We appreciate you taking the time to listen in. If you're listening to a podcast of this program, we also want to say thanks for joining us. For future show updates and ongoing relevant education news, please join our Facebook community by searching for The Education Doctor, then clicking like. You can find us on Twitter at The Education Doctor. And we're also on Foursquare, where you can see our tips to prep schools, colleges, and graduate schools around the country. We have a great show lined up for you today. Our discussion will focus on how to succeed in college. And it's such a timely discussion because August is a month fraught with both excitement and anxiety over starting college or returning to college if you're a sophomore or upperclassman. And just this morning alone, I met with a reporter who's writing an article about separation anxiety and the whole emotional roller coaster for both parents and students who will be freshmen. So we talked at length about various stressors and what families can do during this major life transition. Then, about an hour ago, I got this great text from one of my families. It was a picture of my client, Tori, moving into her dorm room today, and I loved it because it really highlighted just the excitement about starting college. There are so many butterflies in anticipation of meeting your roommate and getting everything set up and stocked and just sleeping in a new bed. So it's all the start of a new and unfamiliar experience, so it'll be a new experience for Tory as well as for hundreds of thousands of college freshmen this month alone. So now, I'm, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but it's well worth repeating. Here's the rub. College graduation overall in our country today is about 55%, and slightly less than 80% of our freshmen return for sophomore year. When students drop out after freshman year, it cost us nationally over $4.14 billion. That's a lot of money. Our show in July focused on freshman year transition, and today we're going to extend that conversation with our guest, Professor Eric Bettinger of Stanford University and the National Bureau of Economic Research. Professor Bedinger has studied and published in the field of higher education for many years. His work includes the role of teacher characteristics and class sizes in college, the role of need-based financial aid, and I know there are a lot of people today who are seeking financial aid and want to know more about that, and we'll get into it. And his research is also focused around the complexity of the college application process. So some really interesting findings there as it relate to the, SAT, the ACT, uh, which is very much uh, written with anxiety. So we are honored to have him share his expertise and give our family some new insight about what it takes to be successful in college. Before we get started, I want to make sure our listeners have our contact information, our email address is radio at com. if you'd like to submit a question. And another method is to call in directly to our switchboard, which is 714-333-3356. Our switchboard is located in sunny Southern California, but I am broadcasting live from Dayton, Ohio, and Professor Bedinger is joining us from Palo Alto, California. So next week, I'll be returning to Palo Alto, and I tell you, I can't wait. (laughs) I take every opportunity I can to meet with families in California, and next week is it, so I'm excited. So I will take just a quick music break here for a few seconds, and then we will return with Professor Eric Bettinger. Just one moment. This is the Education Doctor Radio Show brought to you by Compass Education Strategies. I'm back now to talk with Professor Eric Bettinger of Stanford University and the National Bureau of Economic Research. Professor Bettinger, are you on the line now?
1: I am. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, definitely. So I want to thank you for joining. So it's going to be a great show. I know right before we started you expressed a little nervousness, but it will be just fine. And there is so much uh, for us to talk about. And so I wanted to just at least start out with giving our families a little bit lay of the land in terms of where you do most of your work. Uh, you're with the Center for Education Policy Analysis at Stanford and also the National Bureau of Economic Research. And I'm not sure if our families are too familiar with those two um, Places, but if you can tell us a little bit more about the work you do there and what, those, what the center is about as well as the Bureau.
1: Well, sounds great. So SEPA, uh, as we call it, the center here at Stanford, it's a center where we're really kind of devoted to thinking about uh, kind of K through 20. Um, we're, uh, most of our work is in actually K through 12, but we're really trying to think about how to empower families and students and the types of research that will help us shed light on ways that we can improve Uh, educational policy all the way up through the food chain and helping students to really kind of get the most out of both, you know, secondary school and all the way up through uh, completion and success in college. So it's a center, we've had a a number of different centers here at Stanford and uh, SEPA right now is the one that uh, we've just started a few years ago as part of a strategic plan with the president here and We've got quite a few active researchers, and uh, our Mm -hmm. website uh, is – people can actually look at a number of our reports. Uh, The National Bureau of Economic Research is often known – it's that organization that is often known for uh, dating the recession cycles. But uh, in
0: in the last
1: uh, couple Mm -hmm. of decades – They've put in a series a a program that was focused on education and trying Mm -hmm. to understand the relationship that education has for kind of national policy. And so there's an economics of education group there, and some wonderful research is published out of there. I think some of the best research in the in the country is coming out of there, uh, thinking about educational policy, educational programs, and trying to Mm -hmm. understand what, what what's successful and what's not.
0: Yeah yeah that's great and it's certainly um a database where i went to look at a lot of information when i was working on my dissertation and still today i find it really useful in terms of some of the work that's published there i'd like to just kind of hear from you as we get more into talking about your findings just what have you found to be the primary factors for success in college
1: well i I think I'll tell you the things I study the most i mean if I had mm-hmm. to say the primary is success, I mean the primary things I would say are, aren't things that I've actually studied all that much i mean i would awesome. if I had to kind of rank the top things in order that I think people mm-hmm. should be doing i mean the 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 dedication to working hard, the academic preparation those are by far the 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 most important things if if yeah. If you haven't come ready for those things it's going to be difficult to do much else and mm-hmm. a lot of what i've tried to do is kind of look around the edges are there different places where they could where students could just do a little bit more or have a little bit uh different interaction and how mm-hmm. how could that make them their success so yeah. you know in particular i think one of the things i've been thinking about is a little about how to at least in recent time how do you nudge students to do some of those things that aren't all that fun um <laughs> you know Take, for example, the day before a midterms. You know, one of the things, there's been a couple of studies out where uh, they have these online courses and these online uh, class sites, and you can actually track the number of visits. And so you'll see uh, suddenly, you know, two days before the exam, even, you know, two hours before the exam, you're getting record Uh numbers of hits on assignments and readings. And oftentimes you can track these down that it's the first time that a student's actually downloaded those things. (laughs) <laughs> and so well, I've been trying to think a little bit in recent years or, you know, in recent uh, months, how do you nudge students or how do you help students uh, either give them the right incentives or to give them the right tools so that they can try to plan a little bit better so that they can have success in school uh-huh. rather than uh, how to procrastinate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now, what have been uh, your more surprising Findings about that in terms of what it takes to get students to plan better because I think probably the hardest thing to do when you have so many Distractions sometimes in college is to really think about planning ahead for something
1: Well, so there's a couple of different things that I've I've looked at Um, one -hmm. that was really fun and interesting was uh I, I spent some time working with an organization it's called Inside Track and they're a company that basically does uh, kind of coaching in college and yeah. one of the things that they did was they would um they would have a coach essentially calling a student and uh trying to help the student kind of sort out what what was on the student's plate what were the biggest challenges and mm-hmm. and what could they do moving forward and i think what was surprising to me was the the size of the effects that they were generating. They were generating uh, big increases in the likelihood that students uh, stuck around after the first year, but then they quit calling the students, and even after they were calling the students, whatever they had been kind of talking about on the phone calls, that extra kind of push Mm -hmm. that they'd given students, it, it had helped students two years later, three years later, after the program had actually ended. Really? And, you know, I've thought a lot about, you know, kind of what were some of those things. Certainly, the coaching element's a big part of it, and but I think there's a lot to be said for uh, communicating with other people, whether it be family members, um, a coaching service like Inside Track or some other organization, if trying to talk through some of the issues. I mean, I think one of the you were talking right at the introduction about that separation anxiety. <laughs> And that separation anxiety, I think it also really hits students the first time that they look at a syllabus and they're trying to decide, oh, boy, how am I going to do this? What Mm. am I going to do? How am I going to prioritize? And either if if some students, I think, are fully capable and can do a great job of doing that on their own, but in other cases it it might be that they need to talk to somebody either at the institution or outside the institution or somebody who gives some suggestions about how to make that successful.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, can you say a little bit more about the coaching and mentoring that Inside Track was doing, and just kind of like what types of campuses, you know, were using that model, and just so, go ahead.
1: So, so Insight Track had a variety of institutions. I mean, some of them were public, some of them were private, some of them were even for-profit institutions, some of them were online, uh, others mm. of them were kind of our traditional models. So th- in the research itself, we were really looking at a broad range of institutions with whom they had worked.
0: Um, mm. I think
1: the The key for that to be successful and and the key for that type of model, I mean, inside track, what they would do is have a coach essentially calling the student and just asking the student, hey, how are you doing? How are things going? Where are you at in terms of school? Um, Oftentimes, the inside track person would – the coach would actually know the student's schedule, and so they'd actually start to go through the classes. Well, I see you've got, Mm. you know, business 101, well, what's that going to take for you to be successful? And they try to help the students both understand what it would be, what it would take for the students to be successful, but also help the students identify things that could be barriers. Mm. Um, I mean, literally, now, I, there, I... I, um, there
0: colleges that took on, that embraced this model as part of their support for students that you know of?
1: Well, most universities at this point have mm-hmm. some type of safety net where they're trying mm-hmm. to find ways to help students make that transition from uh, secondary school into tertiary school. And I think the thing that's been key is identifying what resources. I mean, the students in Inside Track—that's a specific company that uh, schools have hired to bring in—but. Um, mm-hmm. Every school has some type of program in place. Um, it yeah. could be that there's some kind of peer advising program. It could be that there's mm-hmm. a faculty advisor assigned to each student. It could just be that there's a counseling center or something on campus. Right. And I think the you know, one thing that I like about Inside Track quite a bit is it's been very active. It's not passive at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that we expect, I think, at a traditional institution is that students are sufficiently motivated to find the resources they need, that they're willing to go knock on doors, they're willing to go find advisors, they're willing to talk to people. And um, right. that's one of the things I've liked about Track is that they've been willing to reach out. And if I had to give advice to the student today, I'd I'd probably say one of the first things they should do when they get to campus, try to figure out what resources are available. Mm -hmm. Are are there people who can help me learn more in class? Are there different seminars I can go to learn how to take better notes? Is there a coach or an advisor who's willing to kind of check in on me and Mm
0: -hmm. provide
1: some, you know, kind of uh, guidance if I need it?
0: Yeah, yeah. You've said a, a couple of things that I want to go back to. Uh, you were talking just about the importance of planning and uh, getting students to plan better. And one of the areas where I know for me as a college student, I certainly didn't plan for, understand all the dynamics of it, is, you know, deciding on a major and just how big of a decision and thought process that can be. But if, you know... I think some of your research has touched on that in terms of the role of a major. And can you say a little bit more about that? Because for some students they know ahead of time, but there are a lot of students that don't really know that until they get to college and start taking classes. And if that really, what difference does that make?
1: Well, I think – you know I'll even broaden it a little bit. I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's I think the real challenge is the first time you sit down you sit down to do your schedule and to think yeah. about what courses you're going to take. And the first thing that's great is that most campuses have resources to help you at that point. Mm-hmm. But I think at at a base level one of the first things that students should really try to understand is what is does the university what are the requirements I have to be successful? And that comes to thinking about requirements for graduation, what are the potential majors that are interesting to me, and which classes could I take in order to really start to understand what that major is about? Those are the kinds of questions that I think students should ask when they get there. Um, What's frustrating sometimes is when you you talk to a student and they've signed up for courses, and you ask them why they've signed up for courses, and they don't know why they've signed up for a specific course. They don't see it's just a course that kind of magically appeared in front of them, some of their mm-hmm. friends said was nice, but then you ask them what they might be interested in terms of a major and it doesn't help them mm-hmm. then you ask them what they need to do to kind of graduate and get the general requirements, and it doesn't help them and so yeah. you know one of the things I think that is always worthwhile is to understand those systems what do I need to take uh, you know, if, if it's hard, if the system is hard to find those things, find somebody who can talk to you about it. Because if you can take the courses and try to, you know, get a vision of this major or just the general requirements so that you're taking classes that are mm-hmm. going to help you either learn something you're interested in or uh, progress towards that degree, it, it makes a big difference.
0: Yeah. I want to ask, we only have um, another few minutes, but I wanted to ask you to touch a little bit on financial aid and the role of that in terms of the difference that it makes in terms of success in college. So if you can give us a little bit of background just about the research um, questions and then what you found.
1: Certainly. So uh, financial aid for most families i mean the the need for some kind of financial aid, be it uh, grants or loans is just it's a reality in higher education um, yeah. you know higher education we we're hoping that we're going to give people the tools to be successful in their careers and uh, that costs money to help them get those tools um, in terms of the the aid, especially the need based aid um, mm-hmm. the key to all of that is this magical form called the FAFSA. And uh, so many families know about this, so many families just fear and dread the FAFSA. And the Department of Education has really, uh, over the last few years, really taken some steps to try to make that an easier process. But really it's the key to everything. And one of the first goals that families should have uh, as soon as they can get their taxes done in any uh, given year to get those taxes done and then immediately complete the FAFSA form. The FAFSA form, once that's completed, uh, then the student, uh, can actually go into the financial aid office and start mm-hmm. to talk about numbers and start to talk about what options might be available. Um when we look at the research, broadly speaking, uh, when we give about a thousand dollars of aid to a student in terms of a grant data uh, that doesn't have to be repaid, it increases the likelihood that that student sticks around. Um and so, you know, Save every that. dollar counts.
0: <laughs> That again.
1: If I give a thousand dollars to a student to help them stay in college, it increases the likelihood that they'll be around the next year, and yeah. the impact is somewhere around three to five percentage points. But it's mm. a it's a it's a it's an effect that's worthwhile looking at. Yeah. Now there's a lot of other things going on, and a lot, you know we've already talked a little bit about some of the coaching and other things that might be as, as effective. But we know that money matters, and it's on yeah. top of people's minds when they're in school. Uh, To give you an example, uh, one of the things that we know kind of empirically is we know that uh, students at the end of the semester, they start running out of money and they have to work more, and that's exactly the time that they should be studying more.
0: Exactly. (laughs) I
1: I think we're still trying to understand more. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the key is, um, you know, going back to some of the earlier theme of, of procrastination is really trying to get students off their chair early so that they can go and try to get those forms in. Um mm-hmm. and the hard part is for most of those students, you know, 19, 20-year-old student, they still rely on their parents for help with that FAFSA. Um they yeah. they are considered a dependent until they either have a child or they're married or they re, they, they get a little bit older. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um they need that cooperation from parents to get those forms in. I uh, you know, you were talking about our kind of personal experiences, and yeah. I came from a big family. You know, not a, not a rich family, not at all. And we, I certainly qualified for uh, federal aid my first year, mm-hmm. but because maybe I was lazy or maybe I just didn't do uh, understand the process well enough, I I never filled out those financial aid forms. The FAFSA again in part because it was so hard. It seemed like it was an uphill battle, and it's one of my regrets because I had to work a lot of little jobs to try to make ends meet when I was in college. And I think that that's one of the things that students just need to be mindful of. There are these resources there, but they take action on the student's part. They need to actually – uh, push their parents to get the taxes in uh, once those taxes are in, they need to push their parents to help them complete that FAFSA form because they need the parents financial information and then mm-hmm. once that uh, financial information is they need to show up at the financial aid office and talk to them and figure out how to get better packages
0: Mm-hmm. and you know I think a lot of times uh, families may not even know that they can negotiate better packages
1: and I think so- that's right and as- at it, most institutions, they're willing to have that that conversation, and not only are they willing to have that conversation, but there may be some resources and scholarships and grants and even some you know subsidized loans that are available to the student that they would have never known about.
0: Mhm exactly, exactly. Now, can you say a little bit more in terms of speaking to families that have seniors right now? And starting to go through that application process, but have an eye towards, you know, as they're doing that, being successful in college. Is there anything that um, they should know now in terms of thinking about this process and looking ahead towards college that you could share?
1: Well, I think one of the thing, one of our uh good friends, you know, their their mm-hmm. son's a junior and uh we sat down the other day and started to just talk a little bit about the college process and I think mm-hmm. the advice that I gave him is is Jermaine here as well, it's the 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 one of the most important things as a first step is to identify all of the deadlines. Make sure you mm-hmm. understand the process. Um there's a lot of things that we learn the process for and we have to, this is One of those things we go through once in our life, and Mm -hmm. the process has changed over time. It's a little different than when I went to college. And it's important for parents to figure out when are applications due? Well, what -hmm. is the ACT? What is the SAT? How can my student do the best on that? When would they need to take the test? And to start to create some timelines so that there's some real Mm -hmm. guidance as to when all of those materials should be submitted and when and how and, and to whom. Um, yeah. So, for example, that FAFSA form that we just mentioned, uh, that should be one of those first forms that get filled out. The, you know, all of those information should be ready for taxes on February first. That tax is in on February first. The FAFSA hit on February second. Uh, yeah. Moving ahead and having those dates and those guidelines on their on their on um,
0: mm-hmm. on their calendars is
1: extremely important.
0: Yeah, and I definitely see, you know, just how that relates so much to being successful in college because you started out talking about the planning ahead, and that's exactly what you're starting to get a grasp of in the application process as well as the planning ahead, knowing what the deadlines are that you have to meet.
1: Well, I think it's also a great opportunity to start teaching uh, high school seniors also to own that process. To help them to be the ones to own that, because if you can help them own that and help them really navigate that process and work on their own timeline, it's a skill that is essential in higher education. In that first class they get, uh, we'd love to have somebody hold their hand all the way through, and we might be able to provide a coach to give Mm -hmm. them some nudges here and there. But ultimately, it's the student's education, and they've got to take responsibility for it.
0: Yeah. Now, one last thing, because you had touched on this just a little bit, is you mentioned about the ACT and the SAT. And those things, I think, are more written with anxiety than the financial aid is even. And so can you, I know you've done some research in that area. If you can just touch on a little bit, just in terms of sharing with us, what does it really tell the colleges? I mean, that's something that... You know, families often may not know the answer to. They just know they have to do it.
1: Well, I think the key thing is uh, the the ACT and the SAT, uh, different colleges require different exams, but it's the one piece of information where they can compare a student to kind of nationally where that student might rank and all of the students that are out there. And it's a real opportunity to define the student uh, both where they're at in terms of preparation but also where they're at in terms of uh, their potential for success. And those exams, especially at institutions that are going to base their admissions decisions, they're just so important for the family to take seriously, to work hard at, to try to get as much preparation and try to help with. The other thing is it's the schools use it for different pieces of information. Certainly admissions is a big part of it, but it could also be used in how an institution decides who needs to take uh, developmental or remedial courses along the way. Mm-hmm. And so scoring high on that exam puts the student in a, in a place where they can actually uh take some uh, more difficult classes earlier and uh and really build on some of the things that they've done in secondary school rather than have to go back and repeat some of those things.
0: Yeah. Yep. Okay. Excellent. This actually wraps up our show for today. And I want to thank you so much, Eric, for joining and sharing so much. I know that we had a short amount of time, but we did cover quite a bit, don't you think?
1: <laughs> we did, and yes. I appreciated the opportunity to be here. So thank you, and good luck to the listeners on as they navigate this difficult process.
0: Okay. Thank you so very much. We have some great shows coming up for you on the Education Doctor Radio Show, and we'll continue to bring you information that's both strategic and practical for educational success. So please listen to our announcement on how you can stay connected with us. Thank you.